0: Good morning, happy Sabbath. Today we will be having our responsive reading on page 756 in the back of our hymnals. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin.
1: For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak, and justified
2: when you judge.
0: Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the innermost part place. Let me
2: be with this, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow.
0: Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity.
1: Create me in your heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me your Holy Spirit to
0: sustain you. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood gu- guilt, O God, and God who saves me. And my tongue will sing to your re- righteousness.
2: O
1: Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will
2: declare your praise. If you do not like in sacrifice,
0: the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Good morning,
2: church family. Today I will be reading from Isaiah chapter 40, verses through no, verses 2 through 4. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. Today's Gospel reading is in Mark 1, 1 1-14. In uh, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, as it is written in in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, "Prepare prepare a way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the, in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. The more powerful man than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy of, to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of uh, the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like like, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God.
1: We continue this week our theme, Essential Christian Epiphanies. Some of you may recall our last two. One was covered in the Christmas season, and we didn't give it special note per se. Um, One last week was covered. Uh, Anybody remember what it was? Pop quiz. Three kings. Three kings. All right, that's exactly right. We have the visit to the Magi, the three kings, and the epiphany that's exploded there for so many. What was the one before that? Anybody remember? Okay, I'm going home. <laughs> My work is done here, I can see. Uh, that's kind of one, yeah. It was certainly an epiphany for Mary, but for us... In terms of the season, the shepherds, and, and, and yes, they hear the angels singing. It's actually um, uh, after that. It, it's the first one that really kind of explodes things for us. Anna and Simeon in the temple. You remember? Yeah. The first epiphany we covered kind of in, in Christmas season, we, it's easy to just skip right over that story but Anna and Simeon are prophets in the temple of God and bear witness to who this baby is. Now this is not just an ordinary sort of oracle or uh, any kind of sort of weird fortune telling or any uh, thing like this. this. These are two godly people who have sought the Messiah their entire lives. Simeon particularly, it's been revealed to him that he will not die before seeing the promised Messiah. And when he sees the promised Messiah, it isn't like me. You know, I see something go by and don't recognize it until after the fact. I go to the, uh, what do you call it, swap meet or the, uh, and I see the treasure and it's gone before I get a chance to buy it. Anybody have my kind of luck? I buy the lottery ticket. Oh, did I say that? And the person after me wins the 40, $42 million. Yeah, whatever. I, I'm just kidding there. But you get the idea, right? That wasn't Simeon. That wasn't Anna. When the Christ child appeared, they didn't miss it. They took him in their arms and pronounced the blessings that we read. And Mary treasured these things up in her heart, and they're recorded for us today because they explode our understanding of who this baby child is. It's enough that heaven rejoices with the angels singing and the shepherds, yes. It's enough that we have the record of the angel appearing to Mary and then to Joseph, that's all very helpful. But in these prophets we hear a voice of recognition an affirmation that we're not used to hearing. Something really profound is given us in that moment. So then we move on, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because we've spent it past, but since only one of you remembered, uh, might be worth repeating, our three kings come to see the Christ, and we don't really know. There's a lot of theories out there. Were they following a comet? Was it the alignment astrologically of Planets that occurred multiple times within a set period of uh, say 18 months uh, That clued them in was it uh, angelic host that physically just led them and if so What was going on with that that others didn't follow? But anyway, we have three people from the Mideast somewhere maybe as far as India tradition has named them they have gifts to bring, and the gifts are a revelation of their own, aren't they? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And each of these gifts tells us something incredible about this child, and meets the needs of Joseph and Mary as they go forward. What's really telling, as I said last week, is that these are outside witnesses, right? Yes. It's always good to have a witness, okay? But I got in a car accident and my son was my witness and the insurance company and the cops wouldn't listen to him because he's family and I could tell him to lie for me. I could tell him to say the light was really green when the light was in fact red. So the the policeman and the insurance company doesn't care what my son's story is. They take my story, they take the person who hit me story or who I hit story, depending on your perspective. <laughs> she clearly made a red li- a left turn <laughs> on a red light. I just want you to know. Uh, we can talk more about this later. It might be cathartic for me and boring for you, but uh, there it is. You have that that happening, and you have. Internal witnesses only. There was no other person in the other person's car, so it was her word against mine and the insurance company had to sort it out. And in the end, I think my insurance company paid for my damages and hers for hers. And who knows? None of us, hopefully, are the worse for the wear. Thank God. But when you have an outside witness, you have somebody with credibility who's giving testimony because they aren't conditioned from within. These were not Jewish men, although they may well have read Isaiah in Jewish scriptures. These were not men who were led by things that we would want to pay attention to today. I hope none of you are astrologers per se. That would be alarming to me. That's just a clue. That means afterward, I don't want you coming to me and saying, you know, today is an auspicious day. Mercury is in such and such a relationship to whatever and you're going to have good luck. Worse, I don't want you coming to me to say, it's an auspicious day, watch out on the way home, you may well be killed in a car accident. I'm not interested in, in us becoming astrologers, but these men were clearly aware of astronomy and astrology and saw something as portentous and decided to follow that. And we can even say, because we have this rearview mirror, that God's spirit was at work in their midst, in their life, in their affirmation. Then we get to the next epiphany, and it's a kind of interesting one because we deal with it usually only at certain times in the life of the church. It's the baptism of Jesus Christ. This epiphany we usually don't talk about as such, and we talk about it in the context of following the example of Jesus when we have people right here in our own baptismal font, and that is such a rich and wonderful time. So I really think this is the first sermon I've ever done in my career about baptism apart from a baptism. And yet I was struck by a number of things as I went through the passages. You see, in the Old Testament, there was a way to become a Jew. For the men, it involved circumcision. But there was one more step. There was not only sort of an affirmation or declaration which was followed through in this physical way, but for men particularly women, there was the mikvah. You entered the waters. It was a bath that had stairs going down one side, kind of Roman style, actually. I don't know who got it from who. Anyway, going down one side, level, and then coming up out of the other side. And the pattern was that you went into the bath one person, and you came out of the bath another person. It's the, it's the sort of precursor to what we would call baptism or rebirth. The idea was that you win in a Gentile, a Moabitess or whatever, and you came out Jewish. Now qualified to mingle with God's people, to intermarry with God's people, and to declare your progeny heirs of the promise. This was how people outside the circle were enfolded in at one time. So when John comes along, you have something kind of unique happening at that moment because he's not preaching a baptism of entering the mikvah and becoming a Jew. In fact, he's speaking rather differently than the religious leaders of the time and harshly, if you will, to the leadership secular and the leadership sacred. And he comes with this message, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Time for a new direction. Now that's a very odd thing to say to the children of Abraham. Do you find that odd? Those who've been called by his name, those who've been given his name, those who've been given his presence in the sanctuary, those who've been observing the feasts and the fasts, those who have been observing all of the markers, all of the Ebenezers that have been raised, so to speak, those who've been conducting sacrificial services these many years in the tabernacle. Isn't that not an odd thing for John to say? Sin, as you recall, was normally transferred to the animal of sacrifice, the sin offering. And that animal was sacrificed, was it not? Yes. So when John comes and preaches a baptism of forgiveness of sins, it's a bit unique. It's why he gets part of why he gets a lot, of, a lot of mention, I think, on this. There are two other reasons John gets a lot of mention. One, he's the cousin of Jesus, and he's a prophet and one of the most active and well-respected prophets alive at the time that Jesus was coming through. He also gets mentioned because he too was a promised child, born of old parents. He gets mentioned because his message is unique, and his role in highlighting the Christ is powerful for all of us. But I want you to just focus for a second on the uniqueness of this phenomena. He's in the wilderness, not in the tabernacle or temple court. He's wearing garments of humility, not wearing priestly robes. And his call is for the repentance of the people. And his declaration is the kingdom of God is near even at hand. And he recognizes, as does Anna and Simeon, the Christ when he appears, his cousin. And says, Here's the one I was talking about. In truth, I'm not even qualified to untie his shoes, to take his shoes off, to play the role of servant to him. And it gets very confusing for us because Jesus shows up and says, I want to be baptized while John is preaching baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But wait a minute. Our teaching is that Jesus never sinned. And he's already Jewish. So what is the purpose of this? Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he entering a baptism for the forgiveness of sins? Well, as we're gonna find out, as we're gonna explore together as we keep going in this vein of thought, there are multiple meanings to this act. One of the things going on as Jesus asks for this is a subtext we have talked about before here several years back, but that don't usually pay much attention to. And that is that Jesus was at the end or beginning of his ministry. Help me out here. Beginning. So had he established universal credibility yet? No, he had not. And in order for him to be called rabbi or teacher and have a rabbinic school, what did he need? He needed two witnesses or two people who would vouch for him. John the Baptist is the first of these witnesses. John the Baptist gives Jesus credibility. The second witness, we come to just a little later in these passages, and that is what witness that was heard by people? The voice of God from heaven saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. That's the launch of Jesus' ministry. According to the, the Gospels, from here he goes into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days and 40 nights and emerges not weakened and unable to function, he emerges more powerful than ever, performing all kinds of miraculous signs and wonders and teaching with great authority, driving forth spirits and demons and amazing things that we're used to reading about happening with Jesus at the beginning of this ministry. So something very powerful happens in terms of giving Jesus the launch that he needs with John and the voice of the Father. That's one of the sort of underlying revelations or subtexts that's happening in this passage. Another thing is going on with the baptism in terms of the forgiveness of sins, you see, Jesus is finally, we understand in the revelation, the lamb that does what? Good for you. Takes away the sin of the world. He's the sacrifice made once for all. He's the end of the sacrificial system as we know it. He is the Lamb of God. And so while he does not need to be cleansed in any way of his own sin, he not only will carry the sin of the world to the cross, but he wants us to know know what we need to be doing with our own sins. We don't place them on a physical animal lamb and sacrifice it anymore. We repent of our sins and are cleansed of our sins and they are placed on the cross of Christ. On the Christ who died and taketh away the sin of the world. On the Christ who reconciles the world to himself and to the Father. So something Interesting and beautiful is happening in that vein here as well. I don't know how to express it more precisely. So I'm going to let you listen to that and wrestle with that a little bit through this week. The third thing that's happening is something that is revealed to us that in our own history was somewhat controversial and at times rears its head again, and that's the question of the social reality of God. God presents himself to us as a unity. Now, I've always been cautious about speaking of this because it's a mystery that I struggle to apprehend. And the mistake I make sometimes is the mistake all of you are tempted to make. Wait a minute, God is one, the Shema, here, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. We hear in that monotheism, which is good, but then when we move to the number three, our mathematical minds click in and we say, wait a minute, three is not one, therefore we're polytheistic, bad, so we should all be Jews or Jehovah's Witnesses. That's it, go home. Thank you very much. No. no 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 I think I mentioned this and for those of you back you get to hear it twice those of you missed it good you get to hear it again that word Ikad is a social reality echad is the name of one in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is Echad. Now, interestingly enough, in Genesis, that passage or that word appears when God says, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness, male and female, created he them. Ikad. For this reason, a man shall leave his... Here it is. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and they shall be... How many? One, one flesh. The word one there is the same as in the Shema, Echad. Well, clearly, my wife and I are separate beings. And if you're married, you understand exactly what I'm saying. I have my ideas at times, she has hers, and they aren't always the same. I have my will at times, she has hers, they aren't always the same. Name it, plans, ideas, destinations, goals, feelings, not always the same. I love her. She is mine and I am hers. We are indeed, biblically, a family. There's no getting around the closeness that we experience. But we're distinct. And yet, one. That mysterious word, wonderful word, echad. So, when we hear one, We need to think unity, not singularity. Follow me? In the baptism of Christ, he is baptized by John, and immediately we hear a voice from heaven. This is the Father's voice, we say, because the voice says, This is my Son. Whom I love. A sentiment so many of us who are parents feel. With him, I'm using the King James, sorry, because that's how I memorized it. With him, I am well pleased. What an endorsement. And what I tell those of you whom I baptize, I try to tell each of you, Listen for this voice because God is saying the same thing to you today. This is my son or my daughter whom whom I love. I'm so happy and pleased with them today. That's what I hope every person who's baptized here hears. But Jesus hears it and others hear it. The Father is revealed in a voice apart from Christ I don't know what this looks like. You've heard me say that uh, Catholicism represents it as a dove with these radiant light beams flashing out from it. In its iconography, you see it in mosaic, you see it in uh, relief, you see it in all kinds of uh, things, carvings and plaster works. Wherever you see that dove with the light beams coming from it, it's symbolic of the spirit. Because you see, the the word doesn't say that the Spirit was a dove. It says the heavens were torn apart, and the Spirit of God descended as a dove. It's an important little distinction. What we hear in this is another kind of revelation of something that we're going to learn more about, but isn't easy to define. And Trinity is revealed as unity in this moment, which further explodes our minds when we come to the idea of epiphany and revelation and what God is teaching in this moment. Oh, and there's more. Were you thinking we were done? I'd love for you to turn to Luke 12. And I hope that is... uh, correct, but it may not be. Ah, yes. I have come to bring, verse 49, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And I think in some ways he's describing the social reality we all live in anyway, right? But what is Jesus meaning by this? There's a sense in which he's talking about something very... Um, in, in language that we're not used to hearing he's talking about judgment among other things in this passage he's talking about the tension that arises between those who have faith and those who don't or those who believe and those who don't he isn't coming because he sees the family unit as a social problem he isn't coming to divide people against people because he's malevolent, or whimsical. He isn't speaking this way because he's capricious. He's speaking this way because he's describing a reality that we often see in the tension that comes between faith and disbelief, between those who follow and those who don't, between those who believe and those who will not. And it invades even the close relationships of family. But he's talking about how this is coming and he wishes it we're already here. He wishes this fire that he's bringing, we're already here, this sort of sense of judgment, this sense of completion. But he says something very interesting. But I have a baptism to undergo. What's the exact language? and what constraint I am under until it is completed. It's a self-limiting Christ who has a mission to fulfill and he's speaking these words post-baptism of water. The revelation that comes to us, the epiphany that comes to us in this moment when Jesus decides that he's going to set an example, a baptism of repentance, We see something coming up here that informs that for us, doesn't it? The baptism that we all must undergo is not just one of water. What is the other part of that? The baptism of, I hear some of you whispering it, spirit. Or another way of saying it is fire. What happens in the Pentecost, right? Turn to Acts 1. Verse 5, I'll go to verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We read in just uh, the next chapter of the coming of the Spirit at Holocaust. Verse three, they saw what seemed to be tongues of flame, fire that separated and came to rest on each of them and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. That's Acts chapter two, verses three and four. So there's this baptism that he's going to go through a baptism of fire, if you will, a baptism of spirit that he's speaking of. But there's yet another meaning to this passage, right? I'm sorry if I'm losing you, there's just a lot of layers here. I wanna try to get uh, us focused on, on the salient progression here. The next piece of it is, is the question that Jesus asks at times. Look at Mark 10. I'm going to start in verse 35, Mark ten thirty-five. Listen carefully. James and John come to Jesus with this request. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus doesn't seem to be too put off yet and says, What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at the left In your glory, Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. (laughs) Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Jesus in Gethsemane prays the prayer, Father, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass from me. In sociology, there's a wonderful phrase or a wonderful concept that comes from the book Ishi, Last of His Tribe. Ishi says, I don't know if it's translated or if he said it in English, but his people had been wiped out and he said, my cup is broken from what shall I drink? And what he meant by that was that the cup was the container with which a culture is held. Ideas understandings, language, relation. What are you supposed to drink from if you've lost that, your people, your culture? Jesus is referring to more than that. He was referring to the cup of his suffering. We also have this metaphor of the wrath of God being poured out. It is a cup that receives it, the So Jesus is speaking of judgment again, receiving the judgment of God in the cup. He prays that it would pass, but he says to the disciples, you don't know what you're talking about because I'm not sure you're ready to drink the cup that I drink from. I'm not sure you're ready to experience the baptism that I'm going to experience. He's already been baptized. He's speaking of a baptism of fire, a gauntlet. He's speaking of the travails that will come as he lays down his life for a world engulfed in sin. There's even more that we could explore here, but I'm going to leave you with these revelations. In this season of Epiphany, Christ's baptism opens up a portal. It helps us understand the reason he came in a way that we're not used to seeing it. It helps us experience the variety of what is meant in baptism, for we too will not just be baptized with water. Just as we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized, Paul argues, into his what? death his crucifixion and so we are resurrected with Christ in his resurrection and Paul's theology of the importance of the resurrection comes ever more to bear we have confidence because if Christ has been raised from the dead then we too can be raised from the dead if he's not been raised from the dead then we're deceived and to be pitied above all men the resurrection becomes the clue here because the baptism is to death not to life. The resurrection is to life. So we too experience that. And we have a gauntlet to go through ourselves, don't we? Are Christians immune from trial and tribulation? If we're at all close to the end of time, as our church has been saying these years, are we immune from persecution or death? We have a gauntlet to go to. We have a baptism by fire. And will we come through to the other side and be called faithful? Will we be the true witness? That's the call. That's part of what all this means. So in this moment of revelation, in this moment of baptism of Christ, So many things are to be seen and learned about who he is, the social reality he lives in, about the gauntlet that he will pass through, about the importance of a baptism that's not just water and the gauntlet of trial by fire, so to speak, but the infilling of God's Spirit in our lives. And all that that entails. Next week, we'll spend some time on the epiphany of the Transfiguration. Learn more yet about what it is God is trying to teach us about our Christ in this incredible moment of revelation. Until then, I pray God's peace be with us all and his baptism be upon us. And at this time, Will collect our offering. Let the deacons come forward. And now to him who cleanses us in water and fire, blood and spirit, who's with us and who is our all in all, give you grace and peace this day. Amen.